0: Okay, time for questions on Genesis 4 and related subjects. Genesis chapter 4.
1: So, in regard to the, the offerings of uh, Cain and Abel? Yes. Um, I just kind of briefly looked through it a little bit because uh, I'm not sure. Is there any offering for sin that isn't um, like the blood of an animal? Of an animal um, really
0: Is there any offering for sin?
1: There are grain offerings, but as far as I can see, those aren't for sin, right? Are there any, like, offerings for, you know, atonement for sin or anything like that, you know, propitiatory that are pro that are not an animal? It seems, the reason why I ask that is because it, it, I mean, it seems clear uh, that there are offerings that Canebel are offering. I mean, it's for sin, right?
0: For right. Sacrifice for sin. Sacrifice for sin.
1: Um, and so, I was just curious, are there any offerings for sin in the law of Moses that are grain or anything
0: that are not in him? Well, in, in uh, Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 2, that's the law of this grain offering. Uh-huh. And it doesn't say anything specifically, it doesn't say anything, it doesn't mention... Sin. It says it is a memorial portion. Right. It is a memorial portion, and it also speaks of the covenant of salt, or the salt of the covenant on the grain offering. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it doesn't mention it as being for sin, the grain offering. Did you so have I a further follow-up on that?
1: Yeah, just because then that would, that would be more uh, support that what God is desiring as a sacrifice for sin is
0: not what Cain offered. Yeah. Yeah, Cain did not offer what God desired to as a sacrifice or to signify the forgiveness of sins. He did not offer an animal. Right. Right. Which he could have purchased, right? right? His next door neighbor was Abel. Right? <laughs> he could have done that, but he didn't. But, but Cain was raised just like Abel. He knew yes. the difference. I mean, I don't don't think he, you know, thought that that would be a good
2: offering for what, you know, for sin. He knew
0: what... Correct. Cain was raised just like Abel, so Cain would have known the proper sacrifice. That's why God says to him, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? That question assumes that Cain was instructed in the proper way. Yeah. So Cain knew and he did not do what he knew.
3: Could it be even just a green offering, but his heart, his heart was not set? Correct?
0: Both are the problem. His heart was a heart of unbelief and it manifested in his offering. It was, And in Abel's case, he had a heart of faith and that was manifested in his offering.
1: And that, that's why I asked that question, is more evidence to show that that King's offering is evidence of his unbelief, because... Yes, because Joe as well, when he offers sacrifices, it's not grain; it was animal, right? So, like any, any, it seems like most, if not all, sacrifices, you know, in Genesis that are before the law of Moses were supposed to be animal.
0: Yeah. Now, to reiterate this point, it says in Genesis 4.4, the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. Correct. For Abel means his faith, and then how his faith was manifested in his offering, the kind of offering which was the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And then it says in verse 5, But for Cain and for his offering. There's something deficient in Cain, and there is something deficient in his offering. Lack of faith in Cain and an improper offering. Yes? Yeah.
4: Dr., uh, one thing is, that when we were back on this, that you know, it's, this is such, this, Genesis 4 and the sin of Cain is massive to our understanding of Scripture. I mean, I think it's a under-taught and valued section of Scripture. Uh, you know, which so we said when, when we went over it is you know, Ecclesiastes 1.9, there's nothing new under the sun. And all the steps here of that sin is still what we see today. Sure. But, but one thing's in this, right, and I think it's important to understand, it was his heart and his offering uh, is this. is there, There's such a prevailing spirit in our day that as long as you really are sincere or it's really your best, then God's okay with it. When there is really sincere stuff that is your best, that God's not okay with. It. Right. Yes. Particularly okay. in worship and obedience to
0: him. Yes, yes, correct. Cain, this passage in Genesis 4, the difference between Cain and Abel is undertaught. There are so many implications of this, undertaught and misunderstood, that we need to recover that. And one of them, like you're saying, is this relationship between what's inside of us, faith or lack of faith, and how it is manifested. Many people will excuse their behavior by saying that the motive was good. Then we have to ask the question, biblically speaking, we know that if you have a good heart, it produces good fruit, correct? Matthew chapter 7, 13 to 23. So then you will know them by their fruits. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. So then you will know them by their fruits, Jesus says. That means that if there's a good heart... A heart of faith, it produces good fruit. But if there is an evil heart, it produces rotten fruit. Okay? Then, is it possible for there to be some mixture of those two? That is, to have a good heart manifest itself in an evil action. No. No. But there could be an evil heart that pretends that the action is good. On the surface it looks good, but inside the core is corrupt. Okay? Yes, a follow-up?
4: Well then the follow-up is would you say that that part of this teaching manifests itself a lot today in the cry for unity and how uh, like I don't know it like to say that you can That To say that unity is sometimes a bad thing, most people that play in Christian America would think I'm a heretic (laughs) for saying that statement. That sometimes we should be against unity when it isn't in line with what God wants to do. And I think a lot going back to Genesis chapter 4 would be a misunderstanding to say, well... Abel, you gave your offering, and it's good. And Cain, you 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 gave one too. And so we don't want to have any fuss about it. We'll just take it. Aim yeah. for effort. Yes. Aim for, yeah, yeah. for effort. So, so would you agree that this teaching teaches us that unity is not the prize?
0: Unity is not the prize in and of itself. Right. Okay, so a, a wrong manifestation or a, a wrong understanding of motive and actions, is that everybody is seeking for unity, regardless of motives and regardless of actions. They were both bringing offerings. And they're both bringing offerings. So as long as they both are bringing offerings, who are we to judge that one offering is better than another offering, or to say that is good fruit and the other is rotten fruit? Well, number one, Jesus told us to do that, and he taught us that by the Spirit of Christ, 1 Peter 1, 10, and 11. The Spirit of Christ was in the prophets. So, the Spirit of Christ in the prophets and the apostles, Jesus is the teacher, the ultimate teacher through his Holy Spirit, teaching what is true and what's false. From Genesis on, we are told to make a distinction between good and evil. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Genesis 2, 9. Right? And then in chapter 3, they need to know the difference between being a son of God created in his image, and a son of the devil. But they chose the devil, Genesis chapter 3. Then in chapter 4, a manifestation of that in the next generation, the difference between Abel and Cain. God's always teaching us throughout the Bible to make a distinction. Jesus made a distinction constantly. He identified himself as being separate from the Pharisees, separate from the Sadducees, separate from the scribes, separate from the Herodians correct yeah. separate from the romans he was different and we needed to we need to be different so let me give you a couple of examples one is in ephesians chapter 4 if there is to be unity does the bible give us a prescription or a basis for that unity
2: sure
0: yes it says in ephesians 4 ephesians 4 Verse 1 I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. Okay? He exhorts us to unity, unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Well, who is the Spirit? The Holy Spirit, Spirit, or the Spirit of truth, right? 1 John 5, 7, and 8, He is the Spirit of truth, or in in, uh, John chapter 14, 15, and 16, He's referred to as the Spirit of truth several times. So, the Spirit of truth. What is truth? What is holiness, if he's called the Holy Spirit? He means we need to know the difference between what's holy and unholy, what's true and what's false. Unity must be based on the spirit of truth, the spirit of holiness. Furthermore, in this context of Ephesians 4, he eventually tells us in verse 14, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by... Every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. If we're not supposed to be tossed here and there by every wind of doctrine, trickery of men, craftiness in deceitful scheming, well, we need to have discernment, like Jesus said. Know what the good fruit is, know what the bad fruit is. That's a part of the Christian life. Unity based on truth. The truth of the Bible. Then, one more, and that is 1 Corinthians 11. There were divisions in the Corinthian church. Correct? 1 Corinthians 11, he says, verse 18. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, in order that those who are approved may have become evident among you. Those who are causing divisions, that happens because it must happen. Why? So that those who are on the side of righteousness can know clearly that they are on the side of righteousness and maintain and hold fast to that righteousness and truth. And those who are on the side of wickedness may rise up to the top and we might know who they are and avoid them. There must be factions among you, he says, that those who are approved... May have become evident among you. There's a good reason for
4: it. Just follow up, uh, for the people at home, uh, but but twofold, I would say. So, be- because we hear so much about unity in our day, uh, so much about reconciliation in our day, which again, pro unity. Pro-reconciliation, those are biblical terms, (laughs) but we do those according to biblical terms. Going back to Cain and Abel, in their heart and their action, for people that we celebrate for unity and reconciliation, should we not require that of them as well, that their heart and their action, so what they said and then the overflow of their heart, of the action. Should we not measure that as well in people that we espouse as heroes for us, that we should follow in unity and reconciliation? And then the other part of it is: this is also a warning to me, right? That, that I do that, that. That this should be a warning to me that my heart and my actions, they will be the same, but that I'm real guarded as a, as a pastor, I have to think this. There's probably few people more hypocritical in the world than pastors because we know all the right things to say and we are used to talking in front of people in a manner that, that we ought to talk in front of people. So, like, people that we celebrate and honor when we speak about unity, should we not require the same from them before we follow their pattern, per se? Should we? Or should we not be guarded ourselves?
0: Okay, your question, should we not expect good fruit in the people who are calling for unity in order to follow them and emulate them to work with them? Yes. And if you see good fruit, biblically defined, you alluded to that, right? Biblically defined, because they say unity, which is a biblical word. They talk about reconciliation, which is a biblical word. Correct. But often, this is the tactic of the devil from Genesis 3, that... The devil, the world, the flesh, and the devil will use biblical words with an unbiblical meaning. They will use common words with an uncommon meaning in order to deceive, because the devil is the liar and the father of lies and a murderer, John 8.44. That's the way it is. So when they say unity, okay, well, what do you mean, sir, by unity? If unity means that our church is going to join with another church in order to pray together and say we worship the same God, then who is that God according to the other church? Well, in the other church they might say God is not Father, Son, and Spirit. They might say that there's only God the Father, and he is the Father of mankind, and he is so beneficent in his love that we all are going to heaven, and we just need to learn how to get along it until we get there. Well, if they deny the Trinity and speak of God as father, the father of mankind, the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man and the neighborhood of Norman, when they talk like that, that those are our only concerns, then that's a false God. They're worshiping an idol, so we cannot have unity with that church to pray together and pretend we worship the same God when we believe in the Trinity and we believe Jesus is the only way of salvation and that there are few who find it according to Jesus. Right but many who follow the path, the wide road of destruction. That's just one example. Or if the the neighboring church says that uh, sexual immorality in whatever form is acceptable because God's a God of love and we just need to love one another, even if one man loves two or three or ten women, it doesn't matter. Or if a man goes with a man and they commit sodomy together, that doesn't matter. Or all about love and unity, everything's acceptable because God's a God of love. Well, they've taken a biblical word love and they have polluted it. So we cannot have unity with the church like that. It has to be very uh, carefully, very deliberately examined. What do these people believe? And often they give up all of this. They give up theology and they give up morality in their call for unity. Yeah. So that would
4: apply to this. <clears throat> like, we shouldn't have a conference celebrating... Like Martin Luther King, that was recently done because of his theology and his immorality.
0: Yes. Okay. So follow up. So we should not have any conference as Christians celebrating Martin Luther King. We should not. There was a conference a couple of weeks ago celebrating the 50th anniversary of Martin Luther King. Why? Because Martin Luther King denied the miracles of the Bible. He did not believe in the miracles of the Bible. He rejected the virgin birth, he rejected the resurrection, he rejected the atonement, he rejected the miracles of the Bible. He was an anti-supernaturalist. He rejected that. So, how could he believe in the true gospel? Because the gospel itself is a miraculous gospel. It's a miraculous gospel in what was accomplished, and it's a miraculous gospel in what it accomplishes in us as individuals to provide eternal salvation. That's Theologically, he was completely corrupt. What's that? Heretic. He was a heretic, yes, heretic. Then morally, he was a serial adulterer, a serial adulterer, and even the night before he was assassinated, he committed adultery. He was a serial adulterer. No, not, not serial marriages, but serial adulterer. He was unfaithful to his wife. He was a serial adulterer, unrepentant whatsoever. So how can we celebrate him? Both, both his theology and his morality were utterly corrupt. The only thing we can say is, God, by common grace, raised him up to call attention right. to some problems going on in our society that needed to be rectified. And we can say that about him, but we cannot hold him up as a model of a Christian exa- uh, example or Christian minister. Right. Nothing like that, no. Yes?
2: So, two things. One, like what you just said about Martin Luther King, like I was completely ignorant to Like I did not know those things about Martin Luther King. So it makes me think even more, well, it shows even more that we need to be, I need to be, and we need to be informed about the, the people that we are pursuing unity with. Yes. You know, to know where they, you know, what, what are your basis of, for what you believe or who is God to you or... Yes. Instead of just assuming because they're friendly... Yes. acknowledging God that we're on the same page, right? Yes. Um, maybe that. Maybe think of that real quick. Uh, but another another question I have. Um, I thought it was interesting. Uh, in Genesis four nine, the comment you made, uh, it says, "And the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother?'" He said, "I do not know. I am my brother's keeper." Um, was I correct? Was it? Was I? Am I correct in that you said that you related that to? the that we ought to be our brother's keeper? Yes, we because, ought to uh, be. Um, love the Lord your God's like hearts, so love your neighbors yourself.
0: Yes, yes, I mean, that's that's correct. Genesis 4-9, just for the sake of the audio and video, um, was I saying, am I my brother's keeper, meaning that we ought to protect and love our brother. Right. And if we do, then we love God. Yes, that's what I said. I
2: guess my next, and then you kind of answered it, but my question is going to be, what does that mean to be a brother, our brother's keeper?
0: Love your neighbor as yourself. It has various manifestations. Love your neighbor as yourself. Which means, you want salvation for yourself, right? So, explain salvation to your neighbor. Then, if, you were, if your own physical life were in jeopardy, would you not protect yourself? Correct? We protect ourselves whenever we are endangered then if we see and we have the ability to protect our neighbor who is endangered, then help him that's the good samaritan correct the good samaritan he helped his neighbor and that was jesus illustration to the lawyer who said now and who is my neighbor he was trying to get off the hook and then jesus explained that parable of the good samaritan so when you see somebody needy like that in an emergency you would want to be helped so help that person But The problem is sometimes we find people say, well, just anybody who begs or anybody that we see is walking around aimlessly, that that automatically if he approaches me and asks for help, then I should give him whatever I have and whatever I can. Well, no, you have to analyze that. That's not an emergency. And often those people, known as homeless, which I think is an invented term. It's not a proper biblical term. Usually they are drug addicts, uh, they're druggies, or they are drunkards, or they are sexually immoral. Something has caused their problems and for them to live that way. So we need to call them beggars. They are beggars because they approach us to beg for something, right? So they are beggars. They're not just merely homeless as though something happened to their house and they found themselves on the street. No, that's not what happened. Their sin produced that. Therefore, to love them, imagine yourself in their condition. What would you first want to tell them? The gospel of Christ. That's number one. And then number two, call them to repent of whatever they are pursuing. If it's drugs, then repent of the drugs. If it's drunkenness, repent of the drunkenness. Whatever their sin is, repent of it. And if you are willing to repent you understand the gospel, you are willing to repent, then I will help you. I will help you. I'll, take, I'll drive you to some facility, or I will do this or that. I will help you if you are genuinely interested. And often the best way to do that is to invite that person to your own local church. Then you can see if he is really repenting. There will be time that you can observe him, examine him, and see if he really desires to repent. And you will find that the vast majority of those people do not want to repent. And if they do not want to repent, there's no point in pretending that we're loving our neighbor by filling his belly when he is going to hell. What's the point of giving him a full belly but an empty soul and go to hell? There's no point. Why do I say that? That may may sound severe, but this is completely and entirely biblical. Example, in the church, in the church, 2 Thessalonians 3, 2 Thessalonians 3, how to love our neighbor. That's your question. 3, 6, 2 Thessalonians 3, 6. Now, we command you, it's a command, right? Not optional. We command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep aloof from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we might not be a burden to any of you." Not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you that you might follow our example. Now, he means, as ministers, they had a right. Those who received the word were supposed to share all good things with him who teaches, right? Galatians 6.6. That was supposed to happen, but they refrained from receiving to teach the Thessalonians a particular lesson that it's good to work hard, okay? But the people... There was somebody eating without pain. And it says in verse 10, For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. It's an order. If anyone will not work, neither let him eat. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and to eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. And if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that man and do not associate with him so that he may be put to shame. And yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. This is the local church. Admonish him as a brother. If you are truly a brother, I am admonishing you, warning you, I'm not going to give you anything to eat because you are lazy, you're not working. So don't give him anything. That's true love. Love your neighbor as yourself. The same is said, something similar to that, for widows in First Thess- first Timothy chapter five. First Timothy five verses one to sixteen. Five, one to sixteen. Let's see what he prescribes here. First Timothy five, one. Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father to the younger men as brothers, the older women women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are widows indeed. That's curious. Who is a widow indeed? Who is a true, fitting, proper widow? He answers, but if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first, the them is the children and grandchildren, let them first learn to practice piety, godliness, In regard to their own family, and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. Now, she who is a widow indeed, and who has been left alone, has fixed her hope on God, and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. But she who gives herself to want and pleasure is dead even while she lives. Prescribe these things as well, so that they may be above reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. This means that the children and grandchildren are obligated to take care of their own widows, and the widows themselves should not be engaging in wanton pleasure, that they have to repent of that, and their own family take care of their own widows. And if they don't do that, they have denied the faith, and they are worse than an unbeliever if they don't take care of their own widows. Nine. What about the church? Verse 9. Let a woman be put on the list, list of help from the church, only if she is not less than 60 years old. Having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works, and if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to put younger widows on the list, for when they feel sensual desires and disregard of Christ, they want to get married, thus incurring condemnation because they have set aside their previous pledge. And at the same time, they also learn to be idle, as they go around from house to house and not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies, talking about things not proper to mention. Therefore, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. For some have already turned aside to follow Satan. If any woman who is a believer has dependent widows, let her assist them and let not the church be burdened, so that it may assist those who are widows indeed." A widow indeed is a godly one who is at least 60 years old. A godly one who's at least 60 years old. Godly excludes wanton pleasure. It excludes being a busybody, a gossip, it excludes all that. And if they are young, then let them get married again and take care of themselves that way and their families. That's the way to love the widows, the biblical way. <coughs> yes?
2: Uh, in 4, uh, 16, and 17, I mean, part of Cain's uh, curse was it going to be a background. Uh, then in verse 17... Very next phrase, he built a city. Yes. Can you comment uh, on that? How does that? How does that jive? I mean, you see, like build a city and then wander on. Uh, what?
3: Uh, how does that fit with?
0: This? Yes. Good question. In fourteen and 15, uh, 12 to fifteen, he is to be a wanderer and a vagabond. Um, but then he does build a city. Okay. For the time that he was. He did not have the city. I think he was wandering and he was a vagabond. But eventually when he had the son, and then he built the city and named after his son. So in rebellion against what curse there was, he temporarily experienced it. In rebellion, he builds the city. The city was his way of spiting God.
3: An act of defiance. An act
0: of defiance against God. But
3: he's still in the land of wandering.
0: But he, yes, he's still in that, if that land, the city he's,
3: there, there. He's, he's still, he's still, he's still there.
0: Yeah. On, and the ground he, will not produce any fruit for him. The ground, he still he, has to rely on, he still has to rely farmers. on farmers on others. So
3: he still has to go and beg for the people that are, have moved into the city. Yes.
0: Interesting. Yeah. Yes.
3: Uh, I have got this before, uh, in explain the King's generations they, they mention about the ones with the music the, uh, and also who make instruments and who in those kind of skills. And when it comes to Seth and his generation, at the time people began to call upon the name of the God. So there are some features they say music and all the instruments cannot be in the church because they are from the Cain's family line. Uh, the instruments cannot be there. But, uh, so I've got some theories like that. If, is there a reason why there's no mention that the Arabs line has prospered? The common
0: race? Fr- I didn't hear the last part. You, there's a contrast. Cain's line developed musical instruments, Seth and Enosh's line called upon the name of the Lord, and some have determined from that. That musical instruments are of the devil because they come from Cain's line. Okay, I understand that. Then what?
3: Then is there a reason that there's no mention of Cain's or the Seth's line prospering?
0: Okay. Why is it that, is there a reason why Seth's line is not described as prospering physically? Physically, yeah. 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 I think in Genesis 4, the contrast is on thinking about spiritual eternal things. And Seth's line did that. That's why there's no focus or no mention of them doing physical things. But Cain's line, they were preoccupied with the physical things and not the spiritual things. That's what I see happening in Genesis 4, that contrast. Then as to the first part of your question about is the use of musical instruments uh, sin? Well, or, or of the devil? And I would say No, because we do know that in the time of the Psalms, that there were many Psalms that described the use of musical instruments. The most obvious, just to give one example, is Psalm 150. Psalm 150, verse 3. Praise Him with trumpet sound. Praise Him with harp and lyre. Praise Him with timbrel and dancing. Praise Him with stringed instruments and pipe. Praise Him with loud cymbals. Praise Him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. There, that psalm itself is calling on us to obey by using those instruments to, um, to pr- uh, worship God. And then
3: this, this common grace that uh, can this lead to a belief that God's going to bless me no matter what in, in this one? So, and, um, so even if i find God, I'll be excelling in the world. So basically, if i find God, is, is, is a way to excel, because I'm not going to spend my time worshiping God, so I'll be excelling in the middle
0: of the world. Okay, uh, before I ask, answer that question, and I'll repeat it in just a moment, I wanted to say, related to your question about instruments, some people will say, well, in the Old Testament... They could use instruments, but not in the New Testament. Some argue that point. But in the New Testament, such as Ephesians five, verse 19, Ephesians 5, verse 19, which also is re- um, similarly repeated in Colossians 3:16 and also in 1 Corinthians 14 26. It says, speaking to one another in Psalms and hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. With your heart does not mean only with your heart, and singing does not mean just with the voice, because it says there, psalms. Use the Old Testament psalms. And if you're going to use the Old Testament psalms and obey, then you have to use instruments. Include the instruments in it. Um, So, And if they were to say to use instruments in and of themselves are wrong and evil, they also must exclude all kinds of other things that are not even mentioned in the Bible that those same people use in their worship services. They might use a hymn book of songs not in the Bible. They might use a screen to sing together to see the words on the screen. They might use all kinds of other things. So why is it that you can't use instruments when instruments are mentioned in the Bible and implied in Old and New Testament, but you are using something outside of the Bible in your worship service. What they have done is they have uh, swallowed uh, a camel and strained out a gnat. They have strained out a gnat and swallowed a camel. Um, Matthew 23, 24. Okay. Now, the second part, the second question you asked. So,
3: something like not having God in your life is a sure-shot way of excellence, because it's like they, uh, in in the Canaan family and the they excel in worldly ways, so not spending time going to church or uh, or spending time uh, worshipping God, you spend that time in excellence in the worldly matters. So you, you use your strength to learn new skills and all that stuff. So, day
0: so I can make a lot more money versus going to church. yes okay so if if they know that God blesses them with their grace uh, common grace gifts, if God blesses them, then they can feel smug about what God does for them and avoid spiritual things, right That's the danger, correct? Yes, it is a true danger, but God will use that in order to judge them if they don't repent. He will use that to judge them and to make their judgment worse when they don't repent. I say it like this. Remember in Acts 14, Acts 14, the apostles are visiting various cities and they go to a pagan city. Uh, They go to Lystra. And at Lystra, uh, Paul is preaching. Paul and uh, Barnabas, they both are there And the crowds, being pagans and idolaters, they come and they bring sacrifices in order to offer to Paul and Barnabas, thinking that the gods have come down to the earth. Okay? Then what does what do they do? Uh, 1414 says, But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you, and preach the gospel to you in order that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And in the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways, and yet he did not leave himself witness, uh, without witness, in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness." So he warns them, what God gave you and some of which you're bringing to me, bringing to us in order to sacrifice them to us, you have completely misunderstood why God gave you those things in the first place. You forgot or neglected to understand that you should worship your creator and find out who this creator is and offer sacrifices to God, not to me, I'm nobody. Okay, And turn away from your idols, repent of your idols to a living and true God. So, the common grace gifts God gives should be a way for us to point people to God. Now, when they don't repent of that, then this happens. When they don't repent, this happens. You might say, well, we, we tell them, we make it known to them, and they get mad, and what happens? Okay. 2 Corinthians 2.14, fourteen. Second 2 Corinthians 2.14, "...but thanks be to God who always leads us in His triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one an aroma from death to death, to the other an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things?" For we are not like many, peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ, in the sight of God. He says there are two outcomes when we preach. Two outcomes. There is the aroma, to the one an aroma from death to death, to the other an aroma from life to life. When we hear the word and it's implanted in our souls, James 1.18 and one twenty one. when we receive it and it saves us from sin, then we have life, and we continue to receive that word to more life, from life to life. But the unbelievers, when they hear it, they are already dead, but because they refuse to repent, and they trust in the physical blessings, the common grace gifts, they trust in those things, and they think that all is swell and happy for them, and will be not only in this life, but the life to come, they are actually dead people, and... When they refuse repentance, there's more death heaped on them. More death. Worse and worse. Similar to, let's say, a corpse. What happens to a corpse or a carcass? Initially, there is some heat, right, the first day and for a few hours. And then the body gets colder and colder. So that death is a greater death in that sense. And then it decomposes. Then the maggots come, right? And there's a stench in everything. So, that's what happens. So, it's from death to death. It gets worse and worse for them. And in the spiritual sense, their judgment will be even worse
3: yeah.
0: on the day of judgment. Because they would not repent though they had common grace gifts and though they had spiritual temporary gifts, they would not repent. One more?
3: One more? All right, I got
0: one. Um, in the... Cain's uh, no in Lamech's uh, handling of his two wives and, and let me read uh, what my King James says uh, and Lamech said unto his wives starting verse 23 hear my voice you wives of Lamech hearken unto my speech for I have slain a man to my wounding and a young man to my hurt. If Cain be avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech 70 and sevenfold, in in the way I process that, it is more an attitude of contrition, not repentance, but contrition over the situation that he's got himself in, and not a attitude of uh, defiance and uh, communicating. Hmm. uh, uh, And I wonder if you could help me reconcile that. Okay. In the King James Version, it says, I have killed or slain a man to my wounding wounding, and a boy to my my striking, to my hurt. Okay. The reason for that has to do with the phraseology the, the form of the Hebrew there in those two. The preposition can mean two or four. It can mean two or four. And then the pronoun attached to the word, is it um, does it have a nominal sense? That is it the subject like yours to my hurt, or is it in an objective sense for striking me? Is it the object or is it the subject? So, it was a matter of the translational differences between KJV and the NASB. That's what's happening there. But in either case, if if it's true in the KJV sense, then we would have a sort of false repentance the way Cain had. Yes. Or in the way the NASB reads it, then it would be more defiant and lack of repentance. Yes. Yes. So those would be the two options, and that's why it's happening that way.
4: But really it could go both ways at the same time?
0: It could be either meaning, yes. Yeah, it could be either meaning depending on the, the way the Hebrew is translated. Okay, thank you. We'll see you next time.